We'll be continuing uh, this morning in our study, going through the book, The Lord's Supper is a Means of Grace, More Than a Memory, by Richard Barcelos, and today we're on chapter four. So quickly, I'll recap a few of the things that we've covered already, uh, just to get us all back up to speed, get us thinking about what we're discussing in this book. So the last few weeks, we've seen that The Lord's Supper is not only a memorial ceremony in which believers remember and give thanks for the blessings of salvation that Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection, but it's a means of grace through which we receive redemptive blessings from God. And when we talk about means of grace, uh, we, we look at God's redemptive work as a whole. So we know that When God saves sinners, when he redeems sinners, he not only justifies them, he declares them righteous and forgives their sin, but he also sanctifies them, causing them to grow in faith and obedience, causing them to grow in grace and be conformed after the image of Christ. And then ultimately, he glorifies them when they pass on from this temporal state into the eternal state to be with him in heaven And in particular, it's the process of sanctification, that growing in grace of the believer, um, that growing in obedience to God's law uh, that we're looking at here. We know that God uses certain means in order to affect that process of sanctification. And the Lord's Supper is one of those means. We looked at the confession Uh, a couple weeks back and looked at several of those means of grace that God uses to accomplish the sanctification of his people, Um, the ministry of the word, the preaching of the word, uh, prayer, uh, and the ordinances given to the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And so we see that God has certain means that he uses to accomplish the sanctification of his people. And what Barcellus has been pointing out is that the Lord's Supper most certainly is one of those means by which God blesses his people. Um, And then last week, if you remember, Brother Fry talked about how those blessings get to God's people. How does God deliver those blessings to his people? It's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we saw last week, was that the Holy Spirit is sort of the divine deliverer of these blessings to God's people, including in the Lord's Supper. Um, I'll quote here from Barcelos. He has this quote at the beginning of chapter 4, and he reminds us of these points that we've covered. I think this is good for setting the scene because he puts it very clearly in a way that's very easy to understand. He says, The Holy Spirit is the divine agent commissioned by the Father to deliver redemptive or spiritual blessings to the souls of men on the earth. His work in the application of redemption is to usher that which was procured by Christ in the history of redemption to those chosen in him and predestined to sonship through him. This is his work for us in the economy of redemption. This is why it is the spirit who affects communion between believers and the exalted Christ through the Lord's Supper and why it is a means of grace. So notice in that description um, of the Holy Spirit, he's described uh, by Barcelos as being God's agent, bringing blessings to the souls of men on earth. Uh, The Father blesses his elect in Christ and through the Spirit. Christ procures the blessings of redemption through his perfect obedience in life and death 
and his resurrection. And the Spirit then applies these blessings of redemption to believers, including in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is a sanctifying meal. So where do we go from here? Well, Barcelos calls our attention to a particular aspect of the Lord's Supper that we have to be careful not to overlook. Because there is another aspect to the Lord's Supper in addition to the partaking of the bread and the wine. What is it that the pastor does prior to serving the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper? Does anyone recall what happens before we actually take the bread and wine? Yes. Yep. Yeah, the, the pastor says a prayer, right? Before we take the bread and wine, uh, the pastor says a prayer of thanksgiving, uh, giving thanks for the blessings that we have through Christ's broken body and shed blood. And so that means that a part of the means of grace that is the Lord's Supper is prayer. But we also said, if you recall, that prayer itself is in and of itself a means of grace. So prayer is a means of grace in general that God uses to sanctify his people. It's also a means of grace that's part of the Lord's Supper, which is a means of grace. And so for this reason, Barcelos you know, argues, and I think he's right, that it, it makes sense for us to take some time and consider how the Spirit works through prayer to bless God's people. How is prayer also a means of grace, and how does it work as a means of grace in the Lord's Supper? And that's what Barcellus turns to here in chapter 4. Now, if you recall from last week, Brother Fry went through Ephesians chapter 1. He went through a passage there in Ephesians chapter 1 to establish that the Holy Spirit is the divine agent who applies redemptive blessings to God's people This week, we're going to skip ahead in the same letter to chapter 3 of Ephesians, and there we will do something similar. We'll take a passage from chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we'll walk through that chapter to see um, how it is that God pours out spiritual blessings upon the believers uh, in Ephesus, and we'll see Paul's prayer for them. Uh, In doing this, we'll see how Paul understands the Holy Spirit as one who works in accordance with the will of God and in response to the prayers of believers. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 14 through 19. So if you want to go to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 14, that's where we'll be spending our time, or most of our time today. And I'll go ahead and read there's um, in Ephesians, uh, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
So here we have a prayer from Paul. It's Paul's second prayer in his letter to the Ephesians already. And we know that it's a prayer because of what we see in verse 14. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Uh, prior to making a number of petitions of the Father in the following verses. In the book, Barcelos briefly comments on the structure of this passage, and he makes an argument that Paul's prayer is best read as containing three separate petitions based on the repetitive use of the Greek word hina, which is translated in English as that. So I've highlighted here some of the examples, you know, the word that, uh, where you see it, that in English, it's the Greek word hina. And what Barcelos is uh, pointing out is that the best way to read the passage is to look at each of those occurrences as the start of a new petition, a new request that Paul is making of the Father. Um, however, I will note, even if you don't read it necessarily that way, if you use the third clause as modifying the, f the first two, either way, you come to the same conclusion. Um, but breaking it down as three petitions is a helpful way of walking through the passage. And so, in verses 16 and 17, we see that Paul prays for the spiritual invigoration of the saints in Ephesus. He says uh, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then in the second part of verse 17, going through uh, verse 19, Paul prays for their spiritual education. There he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Then lastly there, sorry, at the end of verse 19, we see Paul praying for their spiritual saturation, right? The end goal of all of this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so we see those three things particularly when we break up Paul's prayer in that way. He's praying for the Ephesians' spiritual invigoration, their spiritual education, and their spiritual saturation. Now, with these truths in mind, we are going to focus primarily today on verses 14 through 17, where, as we've talked about, Paul is praying for the spiritual invigoration, the spiritual strengthening of the saints in Ephesus. Um, and first, we will look at who is the benevolent provider in Paul's prayer? Who is Paul asking to grant these blessings? Well, Paul here is praying to the Father. We see that in verse 14. And again in 16, you know, in verse 14, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. In verse 16, he, that he may grant you to be. Right? Paul is praying to God the Father. And he's asking God the Father to give something to the saints in Ephesus. Next, we look at who are the beneficiary recipients of Paul's prayer. Who is it that Paul 
is asking God the Father to bless. Well, he's asking God the Father to bless the saints in Ephesus, the, the church of the Ephesians. Uh, this is important because Paul clearly believes in a God who acts on behalf of men or for the benefit of souls on earth. And Paul is praying for particular persons. He knows these persons, right? He knows the people he's praying for. Uh, and he does so because he has faith that through prayer, God gives blessings to individual souls. Next, we look at the unbounded measure of Paul's prayer. Paul asks God's blessings in accordance with the riches of his glory. Right there in verse 16, we see that he prays uh, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. God is infinite, right? Infinity is an attribute of God. And God's glory is infinite. And God's ability to bless his people is also infinite. God never runs out of blessings to give. He has an infinite storehouse of blessings that he can pour out upon his people. And so Paul appeals to this. You know, Lord, according to the riches of your glory, please bless the Ephesians in this case. Uh, Paul appeals to the riches of God's glory, knowing that God is able to provide all that his people could ever need. And so, you know, Paul is not shy about asking for anything. <clears throat> then fourth, as we continue to walk through this, we see the specific essence of Paul's prayer, to be strengthened with power. In verse 16, this is what he is asking uh, for the Ephesians. This petition means to fortify or to invigorate with strength. And this is what we've been talking about. Paul is praying that God would give the Ephesians spiritual invigoration of the soul. Paul wants to see their souls changed by the spiritual strength that comes from the benevolent Father. Paul is asking for their spiritual invigoration. But then, how does this happen? How does it get to them? And that's what we look at next. The fifth thing we see here is the divine deliverer in Paul's prayer. When he asks the Father to strengthen the Ephesians, he asks him to do so through his Spirit. The Spirit is the means of deliverance of the blessings granted by the Father. We see there in verse 16, he asks for the Ephesians to be strengthened with power through his spirit, right? This is why we refer to these types of blessings as spiritual blessings, because they are delivered by the spirit. As Barcelo says in the book, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to invigorate Christians, to infuse them with power, to deliver blessings from heaven to earth. The Spirit of God is the divine agent through which power comes to souls through prayer. And so again, we've established here um, the same thing that Brother Fry talked about last week, that the Holy Spirit is the one who delivers these blessings from God to his people. And as we see here, 
we can expect that he will do so uh, through prayer, through the prayers of his people. Sixth, we see the desired location in Paul's prayer, the inner being. In verse 16, we see there at the end of that verse, he prays for them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Or as it's rendered in the NASB or the uh, New King James, in the inner man. And this refers to the soul. Paul's praying that the Ephesians would receive spiritual invigoration in their souls, in the inner man, that their souls would not be weak and feeble, but instead strengthened with power from God, given to them by his Holy Spirit. But to what purpose? Why does Paul want the Ephesians' souls to be strengthened? What is his intended result? What, what is his motivation? What is his motive here? Well, that brings us to our next aspect that we'll look at, which is the intended result. Paul asked the Father to give spiritual blessings to the Ephesians so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Faith in Christ and Christ dwelling in them through the Spirit of Christ is what Paul desires for these Christians in Ephesus. But, you might ask, if the saints at Ephesus are already saved, do they not already have Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith? And if so, why does Paul pray for this blessing, that they may have Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith? Well, Barcellus helps explain this uh, by pointing out grammatically that the words may dwell that are used here uh, in the passage are understood as referring to Uh, not to an action taking place in time, like an action taking place at this moment, but they're rather referring to an action as a whole, taken as a whole. So in other words, when Paul is asking that Christ may dwell in the hearts of the Ephesians through faith, he's not asking for something to take place in this moment now. He's simply referring to the overall act of Christ living in his people through their faith in him. Right, something that's already true for the Ephesians, we know, based on everything Paul's written so far. But he's praying for this to continue and to thrive within them. Um, Barcelos provides some helpful comments on this as well. He says, on the one hand, Christ dwells in all believers. On the other hand, through the ministry of the Spirit, who strengthens or nourishes faith, faith becomes a means through which that dwelling is known. It is the means through which the knowledge or sense of his presence is enhanced in our hearts. We are enabled to believe that which is always true of us, i.e., Christ dwells in us, by the work of the Spirit in us as a result of prayer to the Father. So the goal of Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians' faith might be refreshed, renewed, strengthened, and nourished by the Spirit of the Father and the Son, so that they might know the experiential presence of Christ or a growing experience of nearness to the Lord. And then lastly within this passage, we skip ahead quickly to look at what Barcelos refers to as the parenthetical reminder. Um, And it's in verse 17. Uh, Barcelos calls it this parenthetical reminder because it serves as an interjection in the midst of Paul's prayer. 
in which he reminds the Ephesians of the foundation of their faith and the foundation of the spiritual blessings that they receive from the Lord. This foundation, uh, what they are rooted and grounded in, is love. It's both God's love for his people and also their love for him and for one another. The source of their salvation and their hope and their strength is the abiding love of God. But likewise, their faith springs forth from a deep and abiding love for God that has been poured out into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul wants the Ephesians to keep this as their grounding, and in so grow in doing so, grow in faith, and to be sanctified by the Spirit of Christ that dwells within them. So, quickly, we'll take a look at a few other texts as well that help demonstrate what we've looked at here. But what we've clearly seen is that Paul certainly trusts that God works through prayer. God always works in accordance with his own will, but God most certainly works through prayer. Um, Paul's prayers here in Ephesians would make no sense if he didn't believe this. Um, he is praying for uh, God to bless his people through the Spirit and to strengthen them and grow them in their knowledge of the Lord and their faith in the Lord. Um, <clears throat> just a quick side note as well. You know, um, in our church, certainly, we uh, hold to a reformed view of the doctrines of grace. We're uh, Calvinistic. We uh, certainly affirm God's election uh, unto salvation of uh, his chosen people and his predestination of them to uh, adoption into his family. Uh, we affirm all of these things in accordance with Ephesians chapter 1, which is what we looked at last week. But um, if you've ever, you know, taken that view forward or been in a conversation with someone who uh, um, opposes that view, because there are a few folks out there who take opposition to that, um, one of the things you may have heard from people is, well, if you believe that God is sovereign over all things, that God has decreed all that comes to pass and he's completely sovereign over who's saved and who's not, then why even pray? What's the point of praying? Because God already has decided what he's going to do, so why do you bother praying? I don't know if you've ever heard that. I, I have. Um, and, I mean, you know, clearly we could respond that God has called us to pray, right? He, he calls us to pray. That it's a privilege to pray. Um, another thing that we've seen here is prayer is a means of grace. It's through prayer that God... Um, that he sanctifies his people, that he draws them into a closer fellowship with him, that he deepens their faith, he deepens their assurance of salvation. Um, there are many reasons why we pray and why we should be thankful for the gift of prayer. But just one other note, um, you know, Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the most clear statements that Paul gives or, or that we see anywhere in Scripture of this doctrine of election that God has uh, chosen for himself an elect um, people to save and that he has predestined them for this. Um, 
Paul finishes that passage in Ephesians chapter 1 and immediately goes into a prayer where he begins to give God thanks and ask God to provide spiritual blessings upon his people. Then here in chapter 3, as we've just seen, Paul resumes praying for his people, asking for, uh, or for um, the Ephesians, asking for God to bless them spiritually. Um, Paul has no problem holding these things together. Paul has no problem confessing that God is sovereign over all things, that God has decreed all things uh, that come to pass from eternity, from before the foundation of the world. And yet, Paul still prays, right? And so, uh, and that's not to mention that Paul here is writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, right? Paul is being led by the Spirit as he's writing these things. So, you know, when you hear that pushback, just you know, remember, you know, this idea that God is sovereign and that we still are called to pray. Paul had no problem holding that together. So when we confess those things, we are following in the footsteps of Paul, but also we're following along with Scripture, which ultimately is the Word of God. So I just wanted to, to make that side note there, because I think it is important that we see uh, the apostle who wrote Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, in which he's talking about election, also wrote the rest of Ephesians, where he's praying for his people and asking for things from God. Uh, But just a few other passages uh, we'll walk through that underscore the same point, that that the Spirit blesses God's people, and he does so uh, through the prayers of God's people. Um, Look at Romans chapter 15. Uh, We look at verses 30 and 31. Uh, We read there, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul here is asking the church in Rome to pray for him. He's asking for them to lift up prayers for his protection and that his service would be a blessing to those in Jerusalem. Um, Clearly, Paul believes that God works in accordance with his will, but through the prayers of his people. Otherwise, this would make no sense. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 10 and 11, we read, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So again, we see Paul asking the church in Corinth to pray for his protection, and he's asked them to help us by prayer, right? And um, talks about the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Blessings come through prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 17, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. 
here, as I mentioned, this is you know, following right after the passage that uh, Paul has in Ephesians chapter 1 on election and predestination. He starts to give thanks for um, uh, the blessings that have come from God, and he prays for additional spiritual blessings upon his people. And then in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In this passage, Paul prays for God to bless his church with love, knowledge, discernment, the fruits of the Spirit, right? He prays for them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul prays for all of this happen, to happen to the glory and praise of God, the chief end of man. And so coming back to the topic of our study, the Lord's Supper, how does what we've observed today tie in? Well, we've seen that God grants to his people the blessings of spiritual invigoration through the work of the Holy Spirit by confirming them and growing them in their faith in Christ, and that he does so according to his good pleasure, but also in response to the prayers of his saints. This means that it is important for believers to pray. Not only important, but it's our great privilege, and it's the spiritual duty of believers to pray to the Lord. And we ought to pray with great faith as Paul did because we know that prayers are effective. That God works through the prayers of his people according to his wisdom and his good pleasure. This does not mean that when we pray that we come and demand things of God. Rather, we come before our loving Father in humility and we ask for spiritual blessings in accordance with his will. We talked about that in our study where we talked about praying backwards, praying in Jesus' name. We, we pray all things in accordance with God's will. And this is an integral part of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. During the supper, the pastor says a prayer of thanksgiving, and he asks God's blessings on the ordinance. In turn, the Spirit is a means through which that which is symbolized in the bread and the cup the benefits of Christ's death, redemption, and spiritual blessings. It's, uh, you know, this means is where these blessings are brought to the souls of believers by God's grace. And so in the supper, we receive spiritual blessings from God. And a key part of this is the prayer of thanksgiving that's offered as we enjoy this special communion with Jesus Christ the one who gave his body and blood, that we might be spared from death and instead have life everlasting in his name.